A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. On the list of pointless and dispiriting positions to play in world sport, let's just call it worst positions in sport, Kent, to be clear about it. International rules goalkeeper for the Australian team was ranked pretty high. Ashley McGrath is a name of man who had to occupy that slot for them this year, and I couldn't help feel sorry for him after about the fourth or fifth or maybe it was the sixth goal he conceded on Saturday night. Bearing in mind, this is a position that doesn't exist in a sport that doesn't exist, really. So not very easy for... Uh, for he wasn't even really particularly diving for the ball on a lot of occasions. Yeah. Now, they were being buried into the bottom corner, so it was rather pointless to dive for them. I, I was thinking about that. Maybe the guy whose job it is to make overlapping runs on the outside of Aryan Robin uh, has a similar <laughs> lonely and pointless task of life uh, as this guy. Although I suppose he, someone He's has the to decoy. the net, you know. So. Well, somebody has to be the decoy in the case of Arian Robin. Yeah, I guess so. You, ha- you have to keep those defenders honest, even though every, every fullback in the world knows, knows exactly what, but they still can't really necessarily. Yeah. NFL pointer, uh, punter, I should say, is pretty pointless. Yeah. I mean, but it's not pointless. You need somebody to boot the ball 50 or 60 yards. You don't actually field. spend any time on the field in play. And if you do... That's a really oh, bad sign. Oh, have ever seen that? The odd time they just get caught for whatever reason, suddenly they seem to be the last man standing between the um, punt returner and a touchdown. They're not the bravest, but maybe they are brave. Not they're the not, biggest men on, on the field. No, so it can uh, get ugly. Those punters. The Ashley McGrath, funny enough, with the international rules goalkeeper, was also dragged across at halftime by T.G. Carr to do an interview, which I'd say, I don't know, don't know what... Um, sadists are in charge of deciding who gets interviewed in TG Carr these days but they decided let's get this guy over and um, heap more misery around but no he's very good one of the points he was raising was yeah it's kind of hard when there are you know, three guys coming in on me I don't really know what I'm supposed to do but he seemed a little bit bewildered now the most emotional certainly that I saw the most emotional interview the weekend was Jason Quigley talking to Hugh Cal after losing the World Championship final some fighters automatically adopt this pose of being happy or maybe they automatically feel 
happy about having got to a final, having a silver medal in the bag, all those things. Quigley very much didn't do that. And he's the first Irish fighter ever to make a world final. But uh, he was hugely upset afterwards. He has had a few days to get over it. So we'll... And it shouldn't even really be get over it. I mean, a few days to reflect on what's he, what he's achieved. So we'll talk to him about that. Actually, I've been reading the interview from the last few days with the two-part interview with Cesc Fabregas again. Oh, yeah. And I kind of saw something in that where Fabregas... This is with Sid Lowe, and we'll talk about it in football later on. But Cesc Fabregas was being asked by Sid Lowe about his time. Like, why didn't you succeed at Arsenal? And he said one of the reasons he felt maybe was that they were so young that they kept thinking, well, we have another year, we have another year, we have another year. And ultimately, that's all well and good, but you do have to go out and do it mm. one year. And maybe that's what Quickly was thinking, you know, okay, so what, I'm, I'm whatever, early 20s, I've, you know, I've barely started my career, but I'm in a world final, and who knows if I'm going to be in another world final. So he seems to have that attitude. Maybe it's something that some of Fabregas' teammates didn't necessarily possess. Yeah, I suppose in the specific case of Fabregas, that maybe that attitude was promoted to a certain extent by... Uh, the coach who was always keen to emphasise how young they were and how this limitless future was stretching out ahead of them. And, of course, it's actually always a lot more limited than maybe it, maybe it appears to most 20 or 21-year-olds. Actually, it takes barely any length of time. Before you know it, it'll be over. And this is likely as good as it gets. So make the most of it. And maybe, you know... From from Quigley's point of view, I mean, it's good to have that attitude. Not everybody needs to necessarily have that attitude to become a champion, I think. And sometimes, I suppose, there's also the the sense of people that people get a little bit embarrassed to admit that they're actually quite satisfied to have won a silver medal. You know, it is it's a pretty good thing to do. But at the same time, I didn't win the big one, so maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe he'll permit himself some quiet. Uh, satisfaction I'm thinking you know I've actually reached a pretty good level there at this stage of my career that's uh, it's a good level to me as long as I can maybe go a bit better than that at some point um, and it strikes me that he does have that kind of attitude he seems to anyway so we'll chat about that a little bit later and congrats to everyone who ran the Dublin Marathon yesterday record number of participants and two Irish winners among them the man dressed as a rhino wasn't one of those winners again nor was the astronaut or the Native American chieftain I don't yeah. even know if those guys finished in the top 10, to be honest with you. Yeah. But uh, there was uh, the part of the reason that there were Irish winners, of course, was that but there, were, there were no elite international runners because there was no... Well, there was a sponsor in the end, but not in enough time to put a decent enough pot together to get some of the best internationals over there. So we're going to just talk about it. it seems to be a mix of things going on. Also, it wasn't on TV, and ideally you'd want that to... Obviously, for promotion purposes, you'd like it to be live on TV. So we'll chat to Jerry Kieran about all that later on. You had a quick look at it, though. Oh, I was watching it for quite a while. Goes actually. by your, your house? Goes by my house around mile 12. Mm. And uh, so I was there to see the first um, the first couple come past, pounding up the road. Well, they were having a great battle. Yeah, they they really were. I mean, they were they were going what looked to me like flat out. <laughs> <laughs> Sprinting. <laughs> pounding along and uh, then slowly followed. And obviously, you get more and more people as the as it sort of comes towards the, the central bunch of people in the race and it's quite interesting to watch this as it all goes by because you get to see the physical um condition of the people it's like one of those almost evolution wall charts um <laughs> you know where you see this sort of uh, ape-like creature on its uh four four fingers and so on and then it sort of gradually straightens up and becomes modern man it was a bit like a kind of regression you know as the as the, uh, I mean, and all these people, I, I want to say, have got incredible heart, incredible courage, and I've, I've got nothing but respect for their achievements. 
But when you see them at the beginning, you see these lead, lean, light, super-toned athletes almost seeming to glide without barely making contact with the ground. <laughs> and then uh, by the time you get to the middle, it's... Uh, a more familiar looking uh, <laughs> cast of characters. That's the marathon gang. These are the people I see uh, queuing for hot dogs at the Aviva Stadium, you know, and here they all are in tight lycra clothing, uh, making the best of a bank holiday Monday. <laughs> You've just captured the essence of the Dublin Marathon. There's, there's no need to even speak to Jerry Gearden, okay, but we'll do so anyway. Rugby now, though, Dunica Ryan visiting Perpignan to discuss a possible move. Ron O'Gara confirming that Racing Metro are interested in Conor Murray and Sean O'Brien, amongst others, out of contract at the moment, or soon to be out of contract. The idea that some of our leading players will follow, follow Johnny Sexton to France is not too far-fetched. Trevor Hogan and Shane Horgan are here to chat about this. Uh, something uh, just to start off with, maybe, Trevor, is a number of factors at play here. Jerry Thorney described this as the perfect storm in his piece in the Irish Times today, but I'm going to take and maybe even add one or two to the list. The French TV deal being the biggest the game of rugby has known, uh, they've did more money than ever in France to try and entice players over. The IRFU contract negotiation skills look to be exposed somewhat in their attempt to keep Johnny Sexton. There's the uncertainty over the Heineken Cup and just what's going to be happening with European rugby next year. And also people may well have been reading over the weekend the the proposed new tax rebate system where players... This is already in place where players uh, have a certain amount of tax that they can claim back as long as they finish their career in Ireland or I think more accurately as long as they are tax resident in Ireland when they claim it back. But usually that would mean that the players, as far as I'm aware, would have to return home and finish their playing careers in Ireland. Generally, that would have been the case for them to get this. Apparently, that now, it looks as though that's going to be abolished and that actually they can finish their careers abroad and still claim the tax back from the rugby they play in Ireland. So there's a lot of these things going on at the moment. I'm just wondering, is it fair enough to say that there is a danger of a lot of players actually leaving? Um, Well, I suppose if you took each one of those on their own individual basis, I'm not sure because the tax one, for example... It's already something that was would have applied already. Mm. Players, I know players have already come back um, from abroad after after playing abroad and come back and got the tax, no problem. But they don't have to do that now. That's my understanding of it, that they can go now and say Peter Stringer, for example, is over in England. He doesn't need to come back. He can just finish up over there and still claim this tax. Exactly, but apparently that was the case already. Really? So lads could finish playing abroad, come home, as long as they're in Ireland, when they, they go to claim the tax, they yeah. still get the money. So that wasn't that big a deterrent. I think the deterrent factor was, and that's still in, in place, in terms of when you leave, the earnings you're earning abroad, that's not, you're not going to qualify for that money to come back. So that would have been an incentive already there for you, we say, to stay. So the, the big earnings you're here, you're getting 40% of that back. So in terms of a perfect storm, that one, for me, it's a bit of a red herring. Okay, well, I actually might just bring Shane Horgan in yeah. on that one as well. Shane, do you think it's a red herring that that's going to make any difference? Um, I think the, the position was, wasn't entirely clear, but my understanding of it was uh, along the lines of what Trevor said. Um, you didn't have to come back and play another year in Ireland. You just had to be tax resident in Ireland when you finished. So you could play out in, uh, you know, in a different country and come back, uh, not play rugby, but remain tax, become tax resident in Ireland and uh, then announce retirement from the game. And that would... Um, that would cover you. Um, now, I don't think it's been tested. Uh, I know people had looked into it, uh, and I think that was the case. But I think the position that the that has been taken now by the government that has tightened that up anyway. So there's no doubt, you know. And if there was a doubt in your mind, you know, it could be a, a very significant sum for some people. If 
they went away. They didn't want to maybe be the first one to challenge it. Uh, now that is no longer an now issue. Now it's okay. So they can be away for as long as they want. It does lose things up a little bit, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But I, I take your point, uh, Trevor. That the, yeah. the, the, the fact remains that you, if you're earning money in France, the Irish government aren't going to be giving you any tax back on that, that yeah, which is maybe not yeah, too surprising. It's not, it's not that surprising, but that, for me, is the big deterrent. I know what Shane's saying, it hasn't, but I think there is a few players that have, I don't want to mention them, that have already done it. Maybe it's, it's because it's a grey area, but there's definitely players that have done it. Some people I know uh, for a fact have done it. So have it's, done. Done. Have actually retired abroad, come home, and still managed right, to get okay. the tax back. Okay. So for me, it was about the deterrent factor in terms of this was what we're saying there. The money you earn abroad won't obviously qualify. So if you stay at home on, on for five or six extra years, that 40% of that money will come back to you. So that for me is a big Yeah, uh, of your best incentive. 10 years, yeah. um, uh, your highest yeah. earning 10 years. So the, well, the other three I mentioned was the, the French money, which is as big as every... Maybe we could tie in maybe the English clubs with that as well. Uh, the fact that the IRFU, the way that they negotiated the Johnny Sexton deal, well, it certainly didn't work out um, for either party in a way because Sexton says he wanted to stay and we think the IRFU wanted to keep him, but it didn't happen. And there's also the uncertainty over what's happening with European rugby at the moment. Are, are, are any of those big factors in? Uh, yeah, I would say that the, the negotiation uh, factors is, is a big one for me and, and how those are conducted. Going by Johnny Sexton's book, the big thing is is the the value that's set on each player. And if, if you put forward an offer that is fairly low in terms of that, the, the player's self-worth is 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 diminished in their eyes and it's almost like it was as you could read in Johnny's book it's like an, it's almost kind of offensive and it's taken as an insult so that is a big one and the strategy adopted there is is key so if if that starts off on the wrong foot and you've got so many high profile players now in that scenario if if you start annoying or irritating those with with offers because uh, you know we probably discuss all all the players will generally know what everyone else is on either through their agent or through you know little informal chats with each other because they're all fairly close they'll know what the the highest paid player is on or they'll know what their equivalent should be they all have an idea of their value so if that value isn't respected or isn't acknowledged and, and, and put forward an offer substantially lower than that, then that's going to kickstart a process of resentment that might start players thinking, like we saw with Dunica Ryan, I'm not saying there was any issues there, but going over and, and having a bit of a chat with Perpignan or, or just sussing things out. Hope it, you know, they will do that, but you don't need to yeah. instigate it further. I guess the Sexton issue hangs over this now. Maybe up until Sexton left, Shane, the IRFU might have been comfortable enough in thinking that... Players are only ever going to use these French clubs as a bargaining tool, but uh, unless Sexton is a one-off, maybe they will have to think differently in future. Um, I think that was a risk they took. I thought they they, they backed the wrong horse there. Though uh, I really think they did. Uh, I think they thought John e. Sexton was a home bird and he wouldn't go. I thought they they thought they could get him for under his value, and uh, as a result, they let him go. I think you're going to have to see a change in the policy uh, of the IRFU um, because I know realistically we can't expect them to match English or, or French uh, club wages. That's something that they won't do and I don't think anyone expects it to do. But I think they do have to change the tact on how they um, they interact with players because um, even with a new deal, if it goes to... And, and listen, we don't know what's going to happen with Sky and BP, BT. Those two are going to certainly end up in court. That's, that's the only... Um, thing I can see out of this and the, the way the negotiations have gone 
so far, uh, excluding uh, the the TV deal, uh, the 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 it looks as if there's going to be a bigger discrepancy between the amount of money that the um, Rabo League teams have and the amount of money that the English and French league teams have. So that's a big deal. That means they're going to be no matter what happens, they're going to be in a stronger bargaining position, and the Rabo is going to suffer. Now to counteract that, I think. The IRFU have to be very specific in the players they target in each province. They have to go after the players and they have to, you know, meet. They have to go for high wages on their key players in each province. And, you know, I would have put Sexton in that key. I would have put uh, O'Brien in it. I'll put Murray in that key in Munster and actually even probably uh, a Pienaar in Ulster, although he's uh, he's not an Irish-based player. So you mean, just, you mean one key guy in each province? No, no, no. Sorry, a number. There's a group of key. I'm just giving you a couple of uh, yeah, examples yeah. there. But a, a group of key guys in each province that they're going to have to pay you know, close to their, to their, to their um, market rate for. Um, I think the other key thing that they're going to have to do then is, and it's something that they've systematically failed to do, they're going to have to stop worrying about the fact that a player might get injured or might uh, might lose a bit of form, and it won't do an early deal with them before they're uh, you know nearly before the other contract runs out. They should look to be doing deals with people you know a year in advance. Even if they have a year left in the contract, they should be looking to tie down the best guys earlier and cheaper. What happens is they run down those contracts in the last few minutes, and then everybody has got the, the guns out, and it's you know it, it's it's Russian really that everybody's uh, you know playing. Um, uh, standing off, mm. so that's that's the other key uh, thing they should do. I think the, the, there's a third key element to this that the RFU need to, to have a look at, and that is offering longer term players, longer term contracts to to young talent. And I think the problem is again they're worried about you know are we going to overpay for a player or is he not going to play well? Now listen, these are calls that have to be made by the coach, they have to be well by the by the directors of rugby and the people in charge of the contracts to go. Actually, this is a young player who has a big future ahead. We've identified him. We think that he's going to be important to the future of Irish rugby. So we're not going to offer him a two-year deal. We're not going to offer him a three-year. We're going to look at four- and five-year deals. So we have these long-term. So, yes, there are the, the, the contracts increase over time, but they start at a, at a you know, not too high a level, and then there's incentives all the way up. If you can tie those guys down to five-year contracts, then you might get someone from 20 to 25 or 21 to 26. And, yes, they might go away for a couple of years, but there'll be another group coming through, and all the time you'll have that core group that you pay that bit of extra for to hold and they keep the culture of the of the organizations yeah i totally agree with that I mean, it's it's it's, it's rare, very rare in rugby to hear of a four-year you know a three-year is, is is the highest that they really and i think shane is, is is hitting the nail on the head there if you can get players earlier why does it always have to be left to the final season dragging into december even january it, it, it provides security for the player and it provides security for the IRFU and the performance. Although if you look at how Sean O'Brien and Jamie Heath were playing, they seem to have relished um, the, the opportunity to show what they're worth. But not necessarily does that work all the time. And I think Although I can see why they wouldn't want to be giving four-year contracts. And yeah. the, the players do get injured and ultimately they might feel that if the IRFU might feel if they're tied into a four-year contract and a guy gets injured after a year and he's, he's not, yeah. a, they're paying for something that they're not getting. Yeah, but they'll pay, they'll pay for it in the long run. You know, if that player doesn't get injured, 
if the player doesn't get injured yeah. and uh, you know they do it, you know two year or one year and a two year and a two year and a two year, then they end up actually having to pay a fortune for that player. And it's I would imagine that that is a greater risk than actually than identifying younger players over you know that are going to be very very important to to um, the so provinces and to Ireland. You might just have to take the, the odd hit chain, them long term contracts. You just might have to take the odd hit on that if you're the IRFU. That yeah, the, uh, of course, one you or two do. players. And, and, sorry, and it's not just in, it's, it's anyway. not just injuries. Obviously, some players just don't. You know, they they might be looking as though they're going to be a big prospect at twenty one, but by twenty four, they haven't made it. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I think there is a, certainly a, there would be a, a, a core group of players that are, are very identifiable, uh, identifiable as the players that are, are going to come through, and those are the ones that are playing at that age that are playing a lot of um, provincial rugby and yeah. that are on the borders of the international squad. They are the guys you need to tie down, and in some cases, the RFU have done that. I know they went after Madigan and they went after Zebo, and I think they got them on you know they got them on two or three year contracts um, at not not right at the top of the market. And that was really smart play by them. It's a really smart negotiation. But I think you can take that, you know, to a further level. And and I think they should. If they, they have to remember. And I think that we all have to take cognizance of the fact that the RFU is not going to be able to compete long term with these French and English clubs. This is not going to. They're not going to be able to match the wages. They're not going to be able to hold all their players for as long as they want. So you have to think about a different model. They have to be able to think about how can they hold players for as long as they can, the important ones, and then maybe have the you know maybe go away to France or England for a couple of years and try and get them back at the other end, uh, while maintaining a core group of people who are going to who are going to keep the yeah. culture of the organisation. Trevor, you want to come in? Well, just on, on on the exact players to identify, they should like it. it you should be really looking now at Marty Moore, someone like him and, and Jack McGrath need to be put on, if they could, get them on three or four year deals because they have proven now that they are going to be, like in a season's time, they're going to be, they're going to be in serious demand. I want to try and nail them down as soon as possible, even the likes of James Crone. And these are the kind of lads I think Shane might be talking about. Rather than allow it to come to the stage where they're going to be, you know, throwing money at by all over the place, if you just tie them down and really secure contracts and respect what they've, they've shown in the last few weeks. Shane, I don't know if I've ever asked you. Yeah. Just on that, Trev has just named three people who are perfect perfectly identified as, as the type of guys that you would, I would go after now and offer long-term contracts, say we're backing you for the next generation um, of rugby talent in this country and as a result you won't have to pay the top, top money that they'll ha- they, will dem- they will be able to um, get in two and three years' time. Instead, you, you, you sign these guys up to, to, to three, four and five-year contracts right now and you're not paying as much and they're in there for the long term and you know who you have going forward and they're, 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 they're homegrown guys as well. Even in those examples though Trevor how do we know that one or both of those players is going to be in demand in a year's time and that's a confident prediction by you they look like they have it but well, I, I I would be a hundred percent that Marty Moore, Jack McGrath, and even James Cronin are, are going to be going to be playing for Ireland for the next three or four years, definitely. But you'd have to not, don't take my word for it. I'm sure that you they'll look, they'll talk to the coaches, they'll talk to John Forbody, they'll talk to Greg Feek, they'll talk to the, the provincial heads, and they'll know what they're like already. But you can we can kind of go on the basis of the last few games. Even Marty Moore coming on there uh, against Connacht, you could nearly sign a guy up off the back of that impact he really? had in that game I, well it's a bit rash but I would throw that in with the, with the, the, the performances he produced against Cast and, and just the attitude he's shown generally along with Jack McGrath yeah. and James Cronin these are kind of if you leave it too long easy, by the way. this isn't an easy thing to do to identify yeah. these uh, guys and you know that's where the, the top, top guys in the IRFU and Leinster, Munster Ulster and Connacht they have to earn their coin there because you actually have to go Listen, we have to look for a new model. We can't continue the way on the way things are. And 
you know, this is, is it's not easy. It's not an exact science, but, you know, there are key indicators to, to, to identify who's going to be long-term talent and who's going to be successful long-term. Mm. And certainly, you know, maybe not every single one of the people are going to go on and represent Ireland and, you know, play for 50 caps. But even now, you can see that there's a, there's a standard of guy that you can get on a long to medium-term contract that will be contributing to the province and won't be a massive drain on resources. Shane, when you were in the middle of your career, did you ever come close to going to France or did you use that French club, um, any interest as a bargaining tool? Yeah, you know, I think nearly everybody does. And I think the IRFU sometimes had a perception of individual. They thought whether he would go or not. And I think that that was shown up to, to be a real flaw in their negotiation um, in the in the Johnny Sexton um, ne- um, contract because I'm, I'm convinced they didn't think he'd go. I'm convinced they thought he was a home bird and, then, and he wouldn't go. And I think a lot of the um, Munster players have actu- actually suffered from that over the years as well. But that has opened up. This has now opened up because of Johnny going. This has opened up the... the um, foreign clubs to everyone and it's also highlighted and identified the fact that you know we can lose players now in Ireland and our top players will go if they don't if they aren't treated correctly did they, did, did they, they aren't negotiated with early did they think you would go do you think or did yeah they think, I think I think right. they thought I would I, you know I certainly had conversations with clubs um, especially actually Nearer to the end of my career, really, I was uh, I was actually quite close to going to um, to uh, Stade Francais with Cheka. But to be honest with you, that was more of a it, it was I, I wasn't using it as a negotiation tool more so than I actually sort of fancied a couple of years in Paris at the end of my career. I thought it'd be quite nice, <laughs> but um, it, you know, it didn't it didn't work out for me. And I had the you know I still had uh, Leinster in a situation where we, we you know we, we thought we were going to succeed and continue on, and it was a real wretch. You know, would have been a real wretch to leave. But you know, these are factors that are going to come into play for everybody you know these are guys you know fellas are going to look at France and go you know that's maybe something I want to do in my life I've been in Ireland for you know 10 12 years maybe I'll do a couple of years in in, in France now so these are all factors that it's not just rugby that you know the RFEU has to take on board now and realize that there are many many options out there for professional rugby players and with the new deals coming in there's only going to be more and more money and the problem is yes there will be more money for for the RFU or certainly the same that's what they're saying but it's not the it's not the amount of money that the IRFU will have. It's actually how much they have in relation to what the French and English clubs will have. And now as a result of the, of the negotiation that has just gone on last week, the French and the English clubs have, will have more and more and more money than the, than the Rabo teams will. All right, all right, I want to talk to you just about the November internationals and a couple of things ahead of that. First of all, Joe Schmidt hasn't named his captain yet. Now, he did say he didn't want to name a captain who might then be injured and the injury list is pretty long, Trevor. But... Uh, is this a big deal still? Do you think the international captaincy it certainly seemed to be when O'Driscoll lost it to Heaslip? Um, yeah, it is a big big deal, but it's probably played out to a, a higher level than it should be in terms of um, discussion and media and stuff. I think what's the, what's what concern what Joel will be looking at is trying to get a group of game managers, a group of leaders together that will be able to Im- implement his strategy and his game plan and um, you know to have one guy overall that is important just to coordinate it but you know in terms of you have a, a group of three or four guys that will be crucial to, to the game plan Does it matter that, to the other players who aren't in line for it because we all know there's probably three or four guys maybe who could be the Ireland captain or, or would, would be the front runners there certainly two or three guys for everybody else 
Does it matter to them who their captain is? Um, well, looking back over over my time, I, it was never that big a deal who was who was doing the talking or who was coordinating things. But I do remember moments like when Brian O'Driscoll took a step back from the captaincy in Leinster and Leo took it on. I remember that that having a big impact, and it was just the fact that that when Brian took a step back, it just it seemed to have a big impact on his game, and it it, it just I don't know it, it it was a really nice it was a nice touch. It just brought everything together nicely. The group was. Really really solid behind that um, other times then when, when Leo would talk you know he's just so focused specifics on tactics and he's really calm and influenced so the, the captain can have a massive role in setting the tone for the week there's definitely no doubt about it and even that, that aspect of, of Brian taking a step back it's, it's a good it was a calculated good mm. move for Leinster that year now it, it, it's the same approach for, for Ireland this year whether it does 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 Joe think that if Paul or, or Brian takes a step back that it would be better to give to someone else like Jamie this year or whether whether it might you know do Brian good to have it this year or, or Paul just to just to step in and give that consistency you know it does have an impact on players mindset but overall I think what you're looking for is a core group of, of game managers that will that will bring the, drive the, the strategy forward rather than just one guy Shane who do you go for as captain? It's hard to know at the moment um, because you know bodies are injured um, I don't think I, I don't know if Brian would be in a position where he wants it uh, right at the moment or if it would be perfect for him um, coming in off the back of so many injuries um, I think probably you, you look to someone who is now going to take uh, the captaincy on for a you know significant period of time um, and you know I think that would depend you know having a detailed conversation with, with Paul O'Connell whether he's going to be okay for these matches and, and I suppose how long uh, he's looking at uh, playing on for I'd imagine a considerable period of time if that's the case I think you know um, Paul would be pretty logical as a, a captain o- other than that then I suppose you've got the three main c- contenders I think you've got um, um, I suppose to some degree Peter O'Mahony uh, Sean O'Brien and um, then um, Johnny Saxon as well so um, and sorry Jamie Heaslip so you've got those guys that all be putting their hands up um, you know I, I think you know Saxon wouldn't be a, a bad choice at 10 and um, I thought a, a couple of years ago even or uh, when he was uh, when he was when he was uh, they were missing some numbers I thought Saxon would make a good captain I, I think it would maybe control him a little bit as well maybe take a little edge off his critique of players on the field and um I think it would, would be good for his game. I see uh, Sean O'Brien, I think, has matured a lot over the last while. I think he's also the foreign player in the country by a, a mile, and I think he's going to be playing a lot of games. Um, he's going to be playing a lot of games for Ireland in the future. So, you know, he's he's certainly putting his hand up. Jamie did well. I think that he could continue on the, on in the role, uh, um, certainly. But I think, you know, his form suffered a little bit last year with the pressure of the job. I think it was a bit of a rude awakening to him to, um, to recognise how difficult it is to actually do both. And, you know, Peter O'Mahony could easily uh, do the job. He's doing it for Munster. Um, he stepped up and that's not a problem. He's a very good uh, operator. I think um, if he was absolutely certain of his, te- of his place in the team for the long term, then I think he'd, you could look at him also. The injury issues are pretty severe at the moment, Trevor. Now, the good news is that O'Driscoll is OK and Mike Ross looks to be OK as well. But in particular areas, second row, O'Connell, doubtful at the very least. Dunica Ryan out, Ian Henderson, who could cover there, is out as well. Does that leave us, and it should be mentioned that Rory Best has an ankle problem, so don't know who necessarily is going to be throwing in at hooker. Does that create quite a few issues? Is that almost worse in a way to have a lot of, area, a lot of injuries concentrated in one particular area of the team? 
Yeah, I think it actually is, especially when it's the second round. And if you look at the two guys, Paul and Dunica, they're the guys who be calling the line out. They're the guys who are who are organising and orchestrating it. They have a massive unseen role that people wouldn't recognise. And even if it was just another second row that wasn't a caller, maybe the likes of 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 a Mike McCarthy or Dan Toohey, now those guys are going to have to take on that responsibility. And there's a huge role that goes into analysing the opposition lineouts, analysing our own lineouts, where it will go, and the pressure coming into a lineup when the ball's kicked to touch to have the awareness to, to see where they're defending to be able to have the maturity to spot the, the gaps it means that those two guys who have done the role they're gone now they're gone for these games well I, I'm assuming I'm not I should hopefully Paul O'Connell's yeah. okay but Dunnick has gone and so that means you're going to have if Paul's not okay then you're going to have pressure on Mike and Dan uh, Devin Toner then is, is your only recognised guy who, who's been calling at the moment Mike McCarthy did call in, in Connacht but at the moment he's been it's um, it's more or less Dev that's running the show and, and same, similarly in Ulster so it would be a big disruption I think to have or it's a big added pressure on one of those guys if they have to start calling the lineouts. that's why you're looking at Dev who Devin Toner who has been who's been absolutely top notch in his, his lineout awareness and his lineout calling so he'd probably be looking to be one of those starters if if Paul O'Connell's gone. Okay, we'll talk more about the internationals, I'm sure, next week. Trevor Shane, great stuff. Thanks, Emil. Thanks, guys. That's the question that's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football, available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. Tonight, 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 tonight. Interesting, Ken, that Shane thinks Johnny Sexton's critiquing of his teammates may be tempered by being captain. Johnny Sexton himself will admit that he can be a little bit, uh, maybe, narky, in his own words, uh, and maybe that, that would be somewhat tempered. It didn't really happen with Roy Keane. No, <laughs> and I think there are other players of that ilk, sports people of that ilk. I don't know if the captain's armband or the captaincy itself is necessarily going to change the personality of a person on the rugby field. It may not change their personality, but it may change their behaviour. Um, I mean, at the moment, if Sexton's just another player, okay, an important player, everybody, is, I think most of the teammates would respect how good he is. But it's maybe criticism is heavier coming from the captain. Mm. Um, you've got to be, you've probably got to be aware of that. I mean, obviously, Roy Keane's philosophy was, well, if they can't take it, they shouldn't be here. And maybe Johnny Sexton will bring that um, philosophy to it, you know, if you know, as captain. But um, particularly internationally, that also doesn't make much sense. Keane could, and I'm sure I don't know how Keane captained the Irish team, but um, at Manchester United, maybe he's thinking such and such a player shouldn't be here and won't be here for long. Whereas with Ireland both in rugby and football. Stuck with this guy for the next 10 years. This is the person who you are sharing your international career with, Roy or Johnny. Yeah. Whatever it might be. Well, there seems to be a bit of competition. I'm not sure. In the, in the Irish rugby team, there seems maybe to have been a bit more competition. Am I wrong? Um, you're saying the quality of rugby player? Well, just that there seems to maybe be more people competing for places in the team than there have been. There are at the moment, probably. Well, there's a big change in the team is particularly when O'Driscoll eventually does retire mm. and O'Connell will probably only have a couple of years left at that point and a few others so yeah it's, it's, it's moving on Ken 
as are we. Jason Quigley had fought 32 senior amateur fights at home and abroad before last Saturday's World Championship final. And he'd won them all. The streak was ended in that final, but a World Silver medal to go with his European gold is a really remarkable haul for 2013. Jason, you're back home in Donegal. How has the homecoming been? Oh, it's, uh, it's been pretty hectic and mental ever since I came home, you know, uh, from the airport and the whole way down into the Fun Valley Centre last night in my hometown. It's been absolutely amazing. So it has the the support and the support that I've been getting from everyone in my local area and throughout the country has been amazing. Has it picked you up? Because we, the last we saw of you on TV certainly was immediately after the fight and you were struggling, you were doing the post-fight interview and at that stage... Yeah, I suppose you just walked out after being beaten in a huge fight, so you were hugely disappointed. But I know you were hopeful of maybe seeing the positives after a day or two. Have you got to that stage yet? I uh, yeah, you know it's uh, it's disappointing at the time, and it's still disappointing. And I think it's, it's always going to be disappointing for me because uh, I think I'm always going to kind of maybe look at it as an opportunity missed by not being nine months away from becoming a world champion. You know, it's always going to be hard to take, like. Uh, no one how close I was, but I'm lucky I have plenty of years left in me and I can still go and fulfill that dream and maybe take that uh, opportunity must to an opportunity gained in the near future. And uh, But definitely coming home and seeing my friends and family and seeing the support that I have back at home. And it's uh, when you're four weeks away in Kazakhstan, it's uh, a pick-me-up definitely when you come home yeah. and see everybody back at home. The emotion that you showed after the final, I guess, I'm saying it must be quite a difficult thing to do, to have to talk, to be in a fight like that, to have the emotions that you would have right through the week, the couple of weeks, uh, then to lose the fight and have to come out and talk about it straight away. It's probably not a very easy thing to do. No, definitely not, you know, but it's... uh, It's definitely not easy now because um, the last thing you want to do is be chatting about getting beat and you... It's uh, it's 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 just it's hard to talk about. Of course, you know, I was very disappointed, and it's um, as I said, I feel like it's an opportunity missed out that I could have become a world champion, and I could be sitting here today talking as a world champion, but I'm not, and uh, maybe it's a good thing in a way, and it'll. It'll just keep keep giving me that hunger to go on and keep succeeding and doing well. Yeah, well, there is this, I guess it's a cliche in sport that you learn more from your defeats than you do from your victories. Uh, I, I suppose you you would hope that that was true in a case like that, but um, you, you, you'd come away with a silver medal and we shouldn't be talking about this as a, a negative experience. I'm sure it was an incredible couple of weeks, a semi-final victory and everything leading up to the final seemed to be um, an, an amazing experience for you. Absolutely, you know, 2013 has been a, a roller coaster year for me, and it's been a roller coaster year all in a good way. I've absolutely enjoyed every single minute of it. I've, I've achieved what I've dreamt of achieving, and if somebody had turned around to me in the end of 2012 and says, 2013, you're going to win an Irish senior title, I would have absolutely been over the moon and delighted with that. But to go on and do that and to win a European gold along with a world silver medal and go on the unbeaten run that I've been on, it's uh, it's been absolutely amazing. And I'm, when I sit back and look at it and I tell myself that kind of stuff, you know, I really look back and say it is a great year and the World Championships was a great, great, great tournament for me. It's uh, 
it's a tournament that I've been watching on the TV for years and there's been boxers boxing in it and there was boxers boxing in it, Olympic champions, Olympic medalists and world champions and you know, to be in the mix with them it is absolutely an unbelievable experience and then to get into the, the final of a world championship with the boxers that was in it uh, just raised my confidence and has really given me a massive boost also. Did it feel different even from the Europeans? Did it seem, obviously the standard is going to be that bit higher, as you say, with so many world and Olympic champions involved in it. Just the whole feel of it. Did it, did it feel to you like a bigger event? Oh, definitely. You know, you're seeing countries that you may never have heard of before <laughs> at these, these championships as well, you know, and uh, it's a great experience. And, uh, seeing the different styles of boxers and seeing the different styles of countries come at and the way they prepare and everything, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, definitely, it was unbelievable. And I knew going in, I was, I was more excited about the world than the Europeans also, because I knew it was a, I knew it was a step up in class and I knew it was a, uh, it was a higher level in the European championships. And to be honest, I was buzzing and couldn't wait to get at it because I knew of such a high level it was at, and it really it was my first ever major world championships, and I couldn't wait to get in there and test myself and to see where I'm at and to turn around and come out with a silver medal. I really am delighted. Yeah, I see your dad was saying that he thinks that he'd like you just take a month off now, maybe go off on a bit of a holiday. Is that the plan? Are you happy to do that? Oh yeah, well, I doubt. You know, it's uh, it's great now to come home and uh, to see everybody and visit around everybody and have a few nice cups of tea and log of biscuits and everything, we simple things that you can't do whenever you're in Fahari Trin and, and, and the likes of Kazakhstan and everything. But, you know, it's uh, it's absolutely brilliant now to come home and to really enjoy my time now with uh, friends and family and everyone that has been supporting me. And after that, then I'm just going to try and get away and just get a good break to myself and just zone out from everything completely. How does the dynamic work, can I ask Jason, between your dad, who's been coaching obviously since you were a kid, uh, Billy Walsh and Zor Antia, who have gotten a hold of you more recently. There's a lot of, um, obviously a lot of uh, opinions there and a lot of knowledge of how to box. How do it, I presume those three together just have to be sure that the message is, that there's one clear message because the last thing a boxer needs is, is maybe too many voices. Oh yeah, like you know, Billy and Zor unbelievable experienced coaches and my father has made me what I am today like my father has brought me from a seven year old kid to where I am today and uh, Zara and Billy since I moved into the high performance they've been trying to add things to me and just like they're not going to change me or nothing like that They, they know the type of boxer I am and they don't try and change me they they try and get things perfected in me and uh Add little simple things that are effective, and the they like Billy and Zara have been around the world to last three or four Olympic games. They know the insides and out of boxing. They've seen the changes, and uh, you know it's a it's a great team that the high performance have out there. And uh, only for the high performance, like Ireland would not be as successful as they are. And the Irish Sports Council with the funding and everything that's coming in out of the boxing, it really is helping it massively, and uh, it's. Uh, if everything keeps going the way it's going and things keep going well for the sport of boxing, you know, uh, Ireland's going to be well up there in the world map. Yeah, Billy Walsh has been talking about the importance of keeping as many guys amateur as possible. We've obviously seen John John Evan recently decide eventually to go professional. Is it something you've 
had it, and as you're saying, it's been such a whirl, and maybe you haven't even thought about it much. But have, have you thought about the professional game yet? Well, as I said, like from a young age, I've always wanted to be a world champion professionally because that's what I've been seeing on the TV, and that's a dream of mine, and that's a dream that I want to achieve still. So definitely, it's going to be in the pipeline. And uh, but at the minute, as I says, I'm just relaxed and enjoying myself, and I'm not looking at my next step ahead of me or nothing. And I'm just uh, enjoying the moment that I'm in. Absolutely. Well, Jason, enjoy that. Enjoy the tea and biscuits and everything else as well. I will do. Thanks for talking to us. Take care. No problem. Thank you. Bye bye. Great to hear from Jason Quigley. There uh, it does seem as though we were talking about at the start of the show about that interview and how disappointed he was immediately afterwards and. Uh, while he, it's almost as though he's struggling, he's trying to convince himself that he should be positive. But the early part of the chat we had there would seem to indicate that he still just sees this opportunity missed. So he just obviously has that personality trait or that way of looking at things that we talked about earlier on that you don't have to have Ken to be a champion, but might necessarily do any harm to feel like you know, unless you win everything, you have in some way failed, which yeah. he hasn't, obviously. It is, though. I mean, it, there, there is a sense of thwarted expectation. I mean, I'm sure he thought when he was going to the final that he was going to win it mm. and so then you've got to adjust to the disappointment of losing it whereas everybody else looks at it and thinks well you won a silver medal but he just thinks well I lost the final so um, I don't know it's something maybe that he can be proud of in the later years of his life or even maybe later on this week hopefully anyway coming up at 6 o'clock tonight that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really well, you can laugh the walk up I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> now you heard Sepp Blatter there laughing at the concept of Ireland becoming Team 33 in the World Cup. Yeah. And Michel Platini is now suggesting that there could be as many as 40 teams in the World Cup starting from 2018. Why not? The more the merrier. Make uh, make more people happy. That's what he's there to do. And uh, to bring laughter to the nations of the earth. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, that idea from FIFA, where, where it might be coming from, what the possible implications of it might be. And we're also going to talk a bit about, uh, you mentioned it earlier actually, on the Fabregas interview with Sid. We'll talk to Sid about that. And uh, what was a fairly subdued uh, Real Madrid or Barcelona-Real Madrid match, I thought, over the weekend, maybe not really hitting the heights, Barcelona ended up putting it away um, with some aplomb. But if Real certainly didn't hit the they heights. They didn't really. They kind of they only got going when they got rid of Bale. So, yeah. Uh, but we'll talk about a couple of those things. Yeah, Platini seems to be basing his theory on the world being a bigger place now, or at least there being more countries in the world now. Yes. And most of them, it seems, affiliated to FIFA. Yeah. So why not more countries? Let's just have more places. Yeah. Um, let's have an extra 32 matches in the group stage. Let's have 80 group matches at the World Cup. I mean, who wouldn't want to sit through that? You know, uh, and what, what possible reason could there be not for extending that group phase, making it longer, ensuring that you've got these big groups in which half of the matches by the time you get to the final round are going to be dead matches? Why not 
Why not do that? Because, I mean, it's the World Cup. And as everybody knows, everyone has an insatiable appetite for watching World Cup football, which can never, ever be sated, no matter how much of it there is. If you're following the marathon yesterday, the Dublin marathon, that is, you'll have noted that Sean Hare became the first Irish winner of the men's race since John Tracy 20 years ago. Maria McCambridge, the first Irish woman to win it since Sonia Sullivan in 2000. There's also a record participation, more than 14,000 people running the 26.2 mile route, but no headline sponsor initially meant that no top international names were involved, which opened it up a little bit for the Irish athletes. We're joined by Jerry Kiernan to talk a little bit about this. Jerry, overall, is it a good news story? I'd say it was a good news story. Um, Owen, there was a great buzz about the race beforehand and the race itself was actually quite interesting because I had a vested interest in it because I coached Joe Sweeney and Sergio Chivano who, who were second and third and, and Joe Sweeney and Sean Hare were, were exchanging the lead. So it was actually quite an, quite an exciting race. And I suppose if you had the Kenyans, if you had 10 Kenyans in there ahead of them, that race w- wouldn't have seemed as exciting, let's say, to me or maybe to, or maybe to the, the people watching on. So I was out on the course at 23 miles watching because I had about 10 people from my running group uh, running in it. And there was a lot of people out spectating um, more so than, than in previous years. Maybe it was because the weather was uh, unexpectedly good. But there was a real buzz about the place. And afterwards as well, so many people opined that it was actually great to have an Irish winner. Yeah, there was no headline sponsor initially. And that's why there was uh, the prize fund wouldn't have been sufficient to attract the top Kenyans and the top uh, top international runners but do you it sounds like you don't think necessarily that the Dublin Marathon actually as an event necessarily needs that well I, don't, well, I don't think it does. Well, first of all, uh, uh, Owen, it never attracted the very, very best. I mean, you must understand that there are thousands and thousands of Kenyans, but the very, very best go to all. I mean, Dublin Dublin may think it is a great city marathon, but in actual fact, it's not. I mean, you, I mean, you go to uh, New York, you go to Chicago, you go to Berlin, you go to Tokyo, you go to Paris. These are the big ones, and that's where all the big people go to. So in actual fact, the Kenyans that we've been getting uh, over the years actually have been... Good and all as they are, and are and are incredibly good. They're only B Kenyans. Yeah, it would be nice. Uh, so yeah, you, you, you probably think it's more exciting then for some Irish people to be battling it out. Well, well, I tell you what, I tell you what, what, what yesterday's race created. Yesterday's race uh, actually created a hero, if you wish. Now. I mean, don't get me wrong, the standard wasn't wonderful. But there are more people out there, Irish people, who might actually be encouraged uh, to, to actually run the marathon. Because, I mean, that's what happened to me. I mean, I watched Neil Cusick winning in, in, in 1981. And I used to run with uh, Neil, and I felt I could actually run competitively with him. And that's when I saw him winning in, in 81, and there was a huge buzz in town. I said, that's what I want to do. And I ran that race in 1982, and and, and I discovered, actually, I had, I, I had a far greater aptitude for running marathons than I had for the track. Up to that point I actually thought I was a track runner and so you know we need our heroes as well so a lot of people looking in will actually be heartened because a lot of people run with Sean Heron and with Joe Sweeney and they can be competitive with them and they may feel they have a chance there you know yeah I guess a bigger deal might be the fact that there was no live TV coverage uh, yes, well, well, of course. Uh, personally, um, I think there's almost uh, there's almost a censorship of athletics uh, uh, in the media in Ireland in general. I mean, I mean, RTE didn't cover the the World Championships uh, from from Moscow. I mean, that wasn't on. I mean, I mean, these are these are things that should be covered, whether there's an Irish interest or not. So, I mean, we we really do feel in athletics, and you've heard me say this before, and we really do feel that we don't get a fair uh, shake at all, and uh, when people talk about sport because because the commitment the commitment 
from her, from Joe Sweeney, from the nine other people from my running group is is unparalleled. These people train every day and they are very, very good athletes. The problem is this, of course, is we tend to compare them uh, with the world best. And sometimes it might seem as if they're not particularly successful. But that is comparing them against the very world best in the most competitive sport there is. Although, Jerry, even if we compared, say, the times that Hare and these runners are running now compared to your own times, they'd be considerably slower now, which would, I guess, surprise people in some way because you think that athletes in any country should ideally be getting better, particularly in a sport like long-distance running, which we have a tradition in. How, why do you think that the, the top guys now are actually slower than you would have been in your pump? Um I've been asked that question a thousand times on and I don't have an answer. I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't make sense for us to say that we were a golden age or that there was, some, there was something particularly wonderful about the runners 30, 35 years ago. But it is a fact. It is a fact that, that 218 would not have won you the Dublin City Marathon uh, 25 years ago. There was myself, uh, there was John Griffin, I mean, there was others around the place who could do that, who could do that time on any given day. Uh, the standards have dropped um, and yet the standards are actually very high in other instances. I mean, we have, I mean, like we have two 800 meter runners who are going to run 144, 145. We haven't had that in years. We've got, we've got some terrific young people coming through. But it is true what you say that in the marathon, um, and in long distance, uh, we have slipped. But it does seem to be coming back. I mean, there have been signs of improvement. And I believe that there are some people out there as well who haven't dipped their toe in the marathon mortal yet who will actually make an impact in the next couple of years. Well, that's good to hear anyway, Jerry. You mentioned earlier on the top guys in the world. Now, the Kenyans are the top guys really at the moment. And they're regularly doing sort of 203, 204 for the marathon. Incredible times, really. I mean, you're talking, if you break it down, sort of around four minutes, 45 seconds per mile and even a little bit faster, freakishly fast, really. How quick can these guys actually go, do you think, in the next 10 years? Um, I I am inclined not to believe that these times, Owen, are kosher, I'm afraid. To. When, when, when the Kenyans go to these championships, there's only been one Kenyan ever who has won an Olympic gold, and that was a one Juro in 2008, which is perhaps the greatest marathon run ever. He ran two or six in serious heat. But the rest of them, when they go, I mean, a Kenyan didn't win the uh, Olympics last year. Now, they're part of a group called the Valare Group that train in Kenya. Now, Valare is the Italian word for to fly. So, so it suggests to me, now, I know that there are a lot of Italian coaches down in Kenya. And I don't trust the times that are coming out from them. And in fact, a young lady from the Valera Group got busted recently for EPO. So it makes me very, very suspicious that on the one hand, they go along to these city marathons and they run these incredible times and then they come to championships and they don't do it at all. There's a couple of things about that, Jerry. though. I mean, number one, uh, are the financial rewards for winning big city marathons not actually greater for these athletes than, than for winning a medal, for instance, at the World Championships. I mean, the, whatever about the prestige of the World Championships in the, in the global athletics community, in terms of cash in the bank, it's better to win the New York Marathon. Well, it is if, if you take a very uh, immediate view. But if you win an Olympic gold medal or if you win a world medal, you can parlay that. I mean, I mean all the money can actually is basically in appearance money. But what about the fact that these Kenyans, I mean, when we talk about Kenyans, we're really talking about people from one particular tribe in Kenya, the Kalan. Yeah, we're talking about, yeah. I mean, that, you know, we, we've got these incredible athletes. I mean, and this, the stories that you hear, you know, guys who haven't, essentially haven't trained it in any way at all, suddenly taking it up in their mid-20s and immediately becoming world-class. I mean, this kind of thing is happening that, 
I mean, I would be more tempted to look at it and go, well, there's there's clearly some um, exceptional uh, physical traits here, you know, whether it has to do with the altitude that people uh, are growing up at, whether it has to do with their physical morphology. The fact is that it's people from this particular tribe, I mean, four million people, who are producing all the best marathon runners in the world. I mean, that it seems to be their ancestry that seems to be the key here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody, everybody can who excels in sport has gotten very lucky genetically. Uh, it's as simple as that. I mean, I could run 212. My brother couldn't run 212. You know, I mean, I got lucky. He didn't. I mean, he ran marathons as well. He couldn't run marathons. I could. And that's it. I mean, it, it is. And you, I mean, you're right about the Kenyans. I mean, they have a huge, they have an extraordinary, extraordinary advantage, which you don't see in any other sport. You're going to put boxers into a certain weight division um, in you know, it's a level playing field basically in every other sport, but in running, if you're not West African, you're not going to be in the final of the, of the sprints unless you're a freakish person like Lemaitre from, um, from France. And you're not going to be duking it out in the 5K, 10K and the marathon in the Olympics if you're not from East Africa. It's as simple as that. And anybody who says it's down to, the, it's down to genetics and it's down to living at altitude and ancestors and it's evolution and it's everything else, that's a gift that they've been given, which has not been given to mere sea level athletes. And if you look at if you look at again, even if you take a person like 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 Ryan Hall, who is a two hundred six uh, American, he's the fastest American runner ever. He was born at and he lived all his life at two and a half thousand meters. Our own Alistair Craig, who runs for us, he was born in Johannesburg. That's two thousand meters. If you're not from altitude, you're not really at the races. Yeah, but you're not one hundred percent sure that that's the only advantage that maybe some of the. Some of oh, the runners oh, have. Oh, oh but no, but no, what you see, but see, I'm talking about these two threes, two or fours. Yeah. I'm not talking about two sixes, two sevens, two eights. This is commonplace for them. It's the two threes, two fours. And the thing is, there's been a whole bunch of Kenyans recently been busted. Mind you, not the very, very top ones, but generally, you know, when these things, when, they were, when these tablets and stuff are being handed out, you know, I'm, I really am very suspicious when I see them doing it in places like London and all that, and when I see them not doing it in the Olympics. All right. Jerry Kiernan, great stuff. Thanks for talking. All right. The points you're making there, Ken, are certainly, some of them seem to be informed by the sports gene, the book we talked to David Epstein about a few weeks back. Very much so. Owen, he has a lot to say about the Kalenjin tribe um, and the peculiar... Um, advantages of Kenyan runners I mean I'd say advantages I mean the, what he's really trying to do is explain why it is that this one particular tribe produces such a high proportion of the of the world's best distance runners and uh, it's just one facet of a very interesting book which has now been made the shortlist for the William Hill um, sports, book of the, sports Book of the Year Award Oh yeah, what, what's it on there with? Uh, so you've got the sports team by David Epstein you've got Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh mm-hmm. which is about obviously Lance Armstrong uh, you've got I Am Zlatan Ibrahimovic, which is a strange one because that book came out, I'm pretty sure, in 2011. I mean, I read it a while ago. Yeah, it came out in Swedish in 2011. But it was it, it came out in English as an e-book. I yeah. mean, I remember because I downloaded it. Um, it was it, There was an English translation of it available certainly last year. Um, but They're traditionalists at William Hill, Ken. They were waiting for the paperback to come out. So it came, it, it came uh, out in, in English translation in in actual physical you could buy physical copies of this book from about September. Yeah, so. and you handed me a copy, Ken. I've only got around to it over the weekend, over the Bank Holiday weekend. I've been reading I Am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. It's good. It's, very, oh, it's brilliant. It's yeah. really good. Um, so he's on there. What else is on there? Uh, Bookie, Gambler, Fixer, Spy, uh, which is by Ed Hawkins, and it's to do with illegal gambling in India. Mm-hmm. Um, the Boys in the Boat, an epic true life journey to the heart of Hitler's Berlin, which uh, I haven't read. 
and another one which is Doped, the real-life story of the 1960s racehorse doping gang, which is about uh, doping of racehorses in the 1960s. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on that. We're just about finished up for today. Well, not actually for today, but for this particular part of today's programming. Second Captain's of the Irish Times is the email address. Uh, Murph is away on holidays, but I probably should mention that at some point. People are wondering where oh, he was. Only now, people are, oh yeah, Murph, that guy, he's usually involved, <laughs> yeah. involved in these shows. But uh, so that's just myself and Ken. It'll be myself and Ken for Second Captain's Football a little bit later on, so listen out for that. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captain's and Facebook.com forward slash Second Captain's. Thanks very much for listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.